All right, guys. So before we begin today's episode, I want to start off with a special poem by the guy on my shirt right here, whose name is Bill Hicks. The time has come to air the voice of reason in the world gone mad, adrift on banal seas. For all who feel that lies have had their season and whose hearts cry out instead for honesty. For all the weary souls grown bored with dreaming, whose thirst for beauty and for knowledge goes unslaked. For all who want to wake from what is dreaming to know what's real and what is real to embrace. For all who've watched with mounting horror evil's reign upon this world grow ever clear. For all who've prayed in vain, emancipators wielding swords of truth and laughing without fear. Wow. Right? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, guys, uh, welcome to episode 71 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Derek Barris. He's the he's a multifaceted author, um, media expert and fitness instructor based in Los Angeles. He's currently a columnist for Big Think, head of content marketing for Centered and a marketing writer for Stack Social. He's also the host of the Earthrise podcast and the co-host of Conspirituality. And you can find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Substack. And his new book is called Heroes Dose, The Case for Psychedelics and Ritual and Therapy. Welcome, Derek. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for and Derek, on. we're going to get into it right away, man. So, I mean, Alan and I have both been reading your book, and I could say from the both of us that we absolutely love it. And so the first question is going to be, so how come you think psychedelics are so important in sort of um, going back or making or being a part once again of mainstream culture, which it obviously was at some point in the distant past, but is now is kind of, um, we've kind of sort of lost, lost touch with those rituals and lost touch with those healing powers. So can you tell us a little about the book? A little bit back. Sure. Well, I'll I'll entertain that and that question specifically and go back further because I think it's important to recognize in terms of anything in terms of food or what we now call medicine required a long process of trial and error that took tens of if not hundreds of thousands of years to figure out. So the idea that people would take these plants or fungus and try them out as a form of food. And then when they had the effect that they did, that they would create rituals around them is not surprising. And I, in the book, I track the history of medicine, at least from Hippocrates forward and show how we've gotten to a place where we have doctor's offices and vaccines and antibiotics, all of the good things we have, but also some of the questionable protocols that we have like antidepressants and antipsychotics. And understand that even though the title of the book is ritual and therapy, I try to make the point that ritual and therapy were the same thing for a very long time. When you have a small group of people, healing was communal. When someone was sick, everyone in the tribe worked together to heal that person. And there are many different protocols that have happened in the past, whether it dealt with herbs, psychedelics, whether it had to do with the shaman taking the psychedelic and then healing through his knowledge. There's a lot of different ways that have happened. But the case I lay out in the book, in terms of the 20th century, psychedelics were demonized and then made illegal. And for a long time, they were very important uh, glues that bound the tribe together because of the way that they helped inform the mythology of that tribe. And while I am a fan of modern medicine in so many ways, I mean, as a cancer survivor, I'm grateful that surgery and chemotherapy exist because that is something that could have taken me out. So I'm very happy about those things, but I think we've also lost something with the loss of ritual and the loss of the widespread use, the, the widespread, but also intelligent use of these substances. And the book is really just a case of why we should potentially integrate them back at least for some people and the value that they might be able to bring. Right. Yeah. Cause when you hear certain anecdotes of people's experiences, let's say with psilocybin mushrooms and having these breakthrough realizations, maybe uh, realizations about how they act with their uh, family, their friends and kind of dissolving these um, uh, boundaries they may have had before. Let's say uh, for me in my own personal situation um, in my early twenties, I, I'd experimented with uh, LSD and, and psychedelics, uh, uh, psilocybin mushrooms. And um, one particular instance, um, I had tried a heroic dose. So for anyone who doesn't know what a heroic dose is, I believe it's usually, uh, it's, it's higher than the usual amount you're supposed to take. I believe it's usually four or five dried grams. I think. It's five grams, yes. Five grams. So I took five grams. And, 
ended up I'll get into it. I don't think I've ever gotten into this before. Sure, why not? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I ended up seeing some sort of uh, being in the sky. This is, of course, this is going on within my own head, right? It's not real. But I'm seeing like a, a being and it's like some kind of dark being. And, I, and for some reason in my mind, I'm thinking this is uh, this is like the, the evil of the world, like collective bad or something like that. Then I'm listening to um, some kind of peaceful music as I'm encountering that. And all of a sudden it, it starts to kind of dissipate and disappear. And as that happens, I have a certain feeling that kind of goes along with that particular visualization. And then it ended up, it was weird. It's as if um, I had faced something in myself. Um, long story short, because now I'm, the details are escaping me. What ended up happening is um, the very next day, I ended up calling all my family and friends, uh, ended up uh, reconnecting with people I hadn't connected with in a long time. I felt a sort of a sense of openness and and certain things that like with little anxieties or uh, neurosyncratic you know, uh, issues that were keeping me from engaging with these people kind of uh, disappeared. And I ended up uh, reconnecting with them and integrating some of the things that I had learned on the trip. And uh, these experiences are very uh, valuable. There, there are things that uh, you start to realize. Um, I'll get into another story. Why not? Uh, this is when I first tried um, LSD as well. And I realized that anything I was feeling, I was projecting out onto the environment. It, it was weird. I, I started seeing that if I was feeling like uh, happy, it would be magnified by an order of magnitude. I don't know, like let's say times 10, times 100, something like that. And anytime my thoughts went to, uh, they varied. If it was something uh, negative, I noticed that also multiplied. So then it created in me the sense of the importance of understanding the th there was a, like, a responsibility as to what you decide to think and what kind of meaning you decide to attribute to things ultimately determines your relationship to your environment as well. So that ended up uh, creating in me this realization of, you know, when I'm interacting with people, maybe I should be mindful of my projections. That's And it became very important. I started having this sense of metacognition, right? And and I feel like uh, things like that are very valuable when you start to experiment with these sorts of uh, right. substances. Right. And Derek, so from your perspective, right, because I know you talked about the importance of set and setting. And so can you tell us a little bit about what that means and how it sort of fosters social? Uh, well, first of all, how it fosters the psychedelic experience and how it differentiates between various experiences. And then also kind of in the bigger picture, right, um, how it sort of brings about social cohesion or kind of like what Alan talked about, uh, kind of, let's say, uh, development of social unity. Well, to define it, the set, I mean, this is a term that Timothy Leary came up with. Set is your mindset. And so what you, the intention you have going into the experience and basically where you are in life when you're doing it. And then setting is both the environment and the people you're with. And these are all profoundly important because I've taken the same, say I would have the same batch of mushrooms and I would do them one day with some people and then maybe a couple months later, I would try it in a different environment with other people. And even though it was the same exact drug, the experiences were vastly different. And that's why it's really important that you know the people that you're doing it with, or if you're new to these substances, to find guides that are trustworthy and you do a little bit of research beforehand and you make sure you're in the right environment. Uh, I have enough experience with them now after some failures in terms of where I was. And I, I, you know, there is a lot of anecdote in the book, although I try to also get across a lot of the research as well. Uh, but the, the idea is that if you are going in to these experiences, again, you want to be with people that you trust. And one of the things that, so talking specifically about psychedelics, the serotonin 2B receptors, when they affect that area, one thing that they've noticed is that it quiets the areas of your brain that deal with your ego, your identity. And that's really where the social cohesion comes in because our identity is based up on so many things that we associate ourselves with. So for example, recently on our on Conspirituality podcast, we talked about the cult-like nature of the doTERRA um, uh, MLM, the sort of multi-level marketing scheme that's there that was covered in the Netflix film Unwell. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because after we did that in the comments, we had a number of people 
who are doTERRA reps completely agree with us and be like, this is a serious problem. But then we had a couple come on and be like, this is just BS. You don't know anything. This company is amazing. It's the best company in the world. And when you see instances of that, you realize that they have associated their identity so strongly with this brand or this idea of an oil as a healing instrument that they can't step back and offer any criticism about it, even when it's in, it's in not even hiding in plain sight, it's right there. And everyone does this with whatever we attach ourselves to. Uh, and that's partly what creates our identity. And when you're on the psychedelics, you're able to step back and really not be so bound up in all of the things you associate with yourself at that time. And there's a real vulnerability that happens at those moments that can either be extremely therapeutic and transformative or can be frightening. I've been in rituals where people have had very bad experiences because they weren't ready to deal with their stuff. And what, I, what is so important too to get across about these substances is specific to set and setting people have found success doing them one time. Iboga is a good example of that. So Ibogaine has been used for addiction recovery, especially in Mexico, there are clinics that are doing it. And some of the anecdotes that I've read from that, that people that have recovered from addictions, let's say cigarettes, they have this experience where they are just blown open by the psychedelic. But during it, instead of being attached to the substance that they're usually using, they have a vision, much like you just expressed a few moments ago, of seeing something. And the vision is that they see all of the black tar collecting in their lungs and potentially causing cancer. Wow. And they really, they realize, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this to my body. And when they come off, the real work of psychedelics is always done in sobriety. It's never the psychedelic itself. The psychedelic is just a, kind of a reset if you want to look at it that way. The work is saying when you're done with the experience of going back out and being like, I'm going to change that pattern of behavior because now I recognize how damaging it is to me. And some people find success with one time usage of a psychedelic and they never have to use it again. Some people use like the ayahuasca schools, they'll do it twice a month and they have good success because that's part of the social cohesion of that group identity. But whatever path that people take, the set and setting is fundamental to the experience. Because if you're in the wrong place, that can have the adverse effects that people have talked about. And it's really too bad because under the right circumstances, they could have had a much better experience. But you know, there is that's why the emerging protocols, companies, organizations like MAPS are doing it really well. And then I think some of the places with the ketamine clinics, I think we have to really think about this model before it becomes too big. Yeah, intention is incredibly important. And, and I think it's very important to have a reverence for uh, these substances because um, there was, a, there was okay, so I, I did have a breakthrough experience, but then I was thinking, oh, I should keep experimenting with hmm. these things, right? Uh, because I've had such a great experience. Maybe uh, I'm gonna learn more and more wisdom. Maybe I will, you know, fully cleanse the doors of perception and unlock some kind of hidden knowledge. And fully great, yeah, yeah. you know, the cash the records. Yeah, the cash <laughs> records, sure. Um, not, I wasn't actually thinking that, no, but sure. it was, okay. you know, yeah. okay. So, uh, but then I realized as I uh, kept doing it, the intention kind of kept slipping away. It's as if I was thinking it's going to do something for me, right? So, whereas before, maybe I would come in with a question or maybe I would come in with something I was trying to resolve. Instead, now it's just just pure, you know, curiosity, and that kind of went whichever way. Uh, and I definitely had a bad experience with that, and that's why I think also it's important, like you said, to have a uh, to have a guide or people with you that that you trust, and also uh, to kind of orchestrate and design how you'd like this to go. Because otherwise, if you just kind of leave it to be to go wherever it goes, it, it can be very chaotic. Right. Yeah.
And I mean, also from what I'm, what I'm hearing from you guys is that it seems like once you disconnect yourself a bit from, or at least kind of like objectify the ego in some sense, and you kind of view yourself as an observing ego, I don't know, maybe that's a contradiction, but let's say you're observing yourself outside of yourself, that what you're doing is you're pretty much separating yourself from your beliefs. And the thing that sort of fosters or at least contributes to, you know, developing social unity is the fact that you're able to maybe see other people's perspectives, or at least you're able to see that maybe your perspectives are wrong. So Derek, would you say that that's pretty accurate? And if so, could that help? with sort of the, the political depolarization that's been going on? I hope so. I really, it, it'd, be, it'd be difficult to broadly implement psychedelics. I became very fascinated when I started studying neuroscience in about 2005. For a while, my career tracked along neuroscience and music and how it relates to movement. And I developed a program at Equinox that I ran for two years where I taught fitness instructors how music and movement affect neuroscience. And if you study brain chemistry and how it interacts with the nervous system and then the environment, I think evolutionary biology is a good path to look down because you want to see how we developed. And part of in the book where I talk about the memory system and how we develop memories and how they become part of our identity, uh, that sort of sets up the, the section on religion in the book. Because we equate so we equate ourselves so strongly with this group form with this group identity, and psychedelics, as Stanislav Grof said, are non-specific amplifiers. So they work very well in small groups. The problem is if I took them and then somebody else uh, took them under the guise of, say, a more conservative Trumpian environment where they were doing it as part of a ritual of their belief system, it's only going to strengthen their belief system. So you have to create an environment where people of opposing ideologies could get together for healing. And I think that MDMA would be the most suited, which is not actually a psychedelic traditionally because it affects the dopamine receptors in your brain. But I think something like that could be the most effective tool for communication. Broadly, if you were to implement something like LSD, it could only help to feed the paranoia or strengthen the mindset of people. So if you aren't actively trying to, because there's no way to implement psychedelics in a way where everyone in America takes them, right? So you have both <laughs> different ideologies doing them together. And because there's already such a difference in the shared view of reality in these groups, it would be very hard to create anything that could be progressive on that level. So it, it, it's, it's, it's really a difficult question. Uh, for that reason, like it's not, I, and I make this point near the end of the book where I say psychedelics aren't a cure-all. We saw that with CBD, right? When, when, when CBD, CBD is one of 113 cannabinoids that we know of in cannabis. And just because it had some seemingly good effects, marketers just took off and created all sorts of bunk science around that and promoted to sell and to make money. And I fear that the same thing is going to happen with psychedelics. So even now, in terms of uh, healing political divide, I've the only success that I've had talking to people has been one-on-one -on -one conversations. Uh, and I feel like psychedelics are the same way. Like they're very small, intimate groups that you need to do these substances with. So maybe on some level, if it helps people work through their trauma, uh, they can think a little bit more clearly. But in terms of a mass institution of them, I, I just I don't know how you would do that, to be honest. Right. And so and staying on the topic of just MDMA and uh, social cohesion. So there was a really great quote in your book that I loved and I wanted to ask you about. Mm -hmm. So you wrote, um, talking about the therapeutic quality of ecstasy or MDMA, you wrote the constant, and this is based on the personal experience. So you wrote the constant bickering of the judgmental mind is suspended as you discover value in places you wouldn't have looked. I love that quote. Um, whereas my first experiences with psilocybin and LSD were with close friends, MDMA helped me expand not only my social circle, but also my frame of mind. I love that so much. So Derek, can you please expand on that? So what did you mean? How did it expand your frame of mind and kind of how did it suspend value judgments at that point? Well, that, so that particular instance was I had done the psychedelics that, I, that you mentioned before. And then a friend of mine who I had recently met uh, asked me if I wanted to try it. And we ended up in the basement of a Jewish fraternity. 
And I spent some time in college and fraternities. My my closest oldest friend became the president of one of a fraternity, so I spent time there. But it wasn't really my scene. Uh, I didn't actually drink alcohol till I was 21. I had done all sorts of psychedelics before I even took a sip of alcohol. So my circle of people were much more cannabis and then psychedelics and then music and hanging out and going like not to those parties, but house parties. And so the fraternity environment was not something that I spent a lot of time and I was there, but it was never something that I enjoyed because I didn't like being around a lot of drunk people. And what happened that evening was there was a lot of drunk people. Uh, I will say there were a few fraternities that I think were like, um, that were also, that one particularly was a fraternity and a sorority. So there was brothers and sisters there. And there was more of a sense of cohesion anyway. It was, it was just different uh, than what we normally associate with that term. But people were drinking and dancing. And when my friend were in that frame of mind, instead of being judgmental about maybe the sloppiness going on, or maybe I was thinking that person can't dance or anything of that nature, everything with the music and the people saw it as a much more joyous celebration. And even though that most people that were drinking and we were on these substances, this substance, it was so much easier to integrate with people in a completely non-sexual way, nothing like that, but just to have fun. And I, I think there's something to that as well. And that's why I mentioned, that I think MDMA would be a good therapeutic substance for people, especially because it's showing efficacy with PTSD. Uh, you know, I, I also do a small section in the book on trauma, and there are some ideas of uh, some psychiatrists that everyone has some trauma in some capacity. So working through it is always valuable, even if you don't recognize that it's there. And I think MDMA is uniquely suited to address issues that people have. Uh, and it certainly worked that night and has continued to work um, ever since. Do you feel like it sort of changes the filter through which you look at the trauma? by sort of you being in this sort of, um, let's say uh, ecstatic state by uh, looking at something that may have hurt you in the past through that filter, it sort of changes your relationship to it or lets you kind of look at it closer without necessarily being so resistant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right before we started recording, you had mentioned my workout session this morning. So I'm I, I'm a big fitness enthusiast, and I I'm fortunate that uh, we were able to build a gym in my friend's garage, which is where we train a few days a week. And this is not related to psychedelics, but I think it's it highlights what happens. Uh, a few months ago, when we had just gone into quarantine, we were doing some deadlifts. And in one of my lifts, I kind of slipped and stepped forward and I hurt my, my QL, my lower back muscle. And that made me have to not do that exercise for a few weeks and just PT it and come back. And then what happened was for a couple of months, I wasn't able to get up to my normal weights because in my head, I kept thinking, oh, if I do that weight, I'm going to get injured again. And that mindset changes how you are able to lift. Because if you go into a lift thinking, I'm not going to be able to do it. Well, guess what? You're not going to do it. Like it's not going to happen. Your form's going to be off. You're going to be in your head. Everything's going to be off. And I just kept pushing through it. And after about two months of not being able to do there, one day I just went in with a different mindset and I completed the lift with no problem. And I've gone up from there. And that's how I look at basically anything and why, again, I think psychedelics are, are valuable. We all have our biases. That's obvious. And that's fine. It's part of, you know, it's an evolutionary survival skill, if nothing else. But if you want to work through some of them, taking, adopting a different mindset is very important because then you can also start to see your own self-imposed limitations. And once you can see your limitations, it's not like you can just just wipe them clean right away. But it does give you, it works as a sort of catalyst to be able to like, well, that is a limitation, but I think I can push through that. And then you start to actively consciously work through those issues. And that's where healing can happen. Um, related to the antidepressants, you know, and again, I, I, I really try to make clear in the book that I think that 
these substances work for people. I was on Xanax for a while in my life for a panic disorder. They helped me. I get the short-term usage. But I have also talked to people who come to rely on certain things as a crutch and they their mindset becomes, I absolutely need this or else I will not be functional. And I think that that is really... I think that's damaging. And I think that that's part of the therapeutic aspect of the psych of the um, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy model that could help people work through their dependence issues, uh, not just on antidepressants, but on a whole range of issues. Yeah. And the interesting thing is with anxiety, I mean, that's like one of those disorders where for the most part, I mean, medications are pretty much just band-aids. So, um, I mean, I could tell you like from my experiences, so like I have severe anxiety at times and sometimes it becomes really debilitating. And, um, so the reason why I've never like sought out psychiatric help for it was because even though in the short term, I really hate those experiences. And sometimes they're like really terrifying where I'm just like, I really feel like, like in a panic attack, like you described in your book, it feels like you're going to die. Um, so, and I hate them and I, I know they're coming and I kind of you when you anticipate it, like, you know how awful it's going to be. But I got to tell you, like in the long run, if would I medicate them away, I would say no, just because like they're not going away. So if you use medication, like let's say Xanax, I mean, Xanax pretty much, you know, you use it as needed. And I mean, you could do that forever. And so the thing with anxiety is if you don't like build up some sort of tolerance to it, and obviously this doesn't happen overnight, and it's very, very slow and very incremental. So unless you build up a tolerance to it, what happens is, I mean, it never really decreases in the long term. So for me, kind of the way I see my anxiety is even though, let's say, I don't know if we were to pick like a five-year period, I would say my anxiety probably went overall from like maybe like a nine or something to probably like a seven, which is not that great. But I think with the medication that would have never happened. Yeah. And it's important to point out that short-term usage is the only usage that Xanax and benzodiazepines are, ex- are approved for. And like you said, well, you haven't tried it. I did use them for six months, maybe once a week, maybe twice on a bad week, maybe some weeks, not at all, which is how they are actually supposed to be used. But that's not what's happening to a lot of people. They become dependent on them and then they're using them almost daily. And that's where you see the real problems. And that's really what I'm addressing in the book more than anything else. Yeah. So something like Xanax is a, is a tool, right? Um, Psychedelics are, are a tool as well. Uh, cannabis is a tool. Um, it just depends on on the user, uh, right, and, and the intention of the user. And just just this is something I think yeah. that's like really important for our audience, just like from a kind of like statistical or you know kind of scientific perspective. So interestingly enough, so medication is for the most part supposed to be like unless somebody's suffering from like severe you know kind of chronic anxiety or chronic depression, medication is actually make a is supposed to make a person be able to stand therapy. Because the idea is, is, let's say you're struggling with like moderate or let's say anxiety or moderate or mild mild moderate or mild depression or mild or moderate anxiety. What happens is chances are you're not going to want to go through exposure therapy or you're not going to want to go through trauma therapy. Right? It's too debilitating. So the point is for you to get on the medication so then you can go through treatment and then the treatment is effective and then you won't need the medication anymore. Yeah, that's 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 the um, argument in support of the medications. Right. Then of course there's the other side of it, right? With all, all these uh, side effects or people who, as you said, Derek, uh, have a dependence on it. They become identified with it. They use it as a crutch. Um, they, Which is, and it's also because of psychiatry too, right? Like something that Derek speaks about in this book is because like when you go see, as we talked about before, yeah. when you go to a psychiatrist, I mean, they don't really necessarily care about what you're going through. They give you the medication and they're like, okay, come back to me in a month. Yeah. Obviously it depends on the psychiatrist, right. but we do see a lot, many cases of that. A lot of psychiatrists will just prescribe you the medication, see how you are on it for however many months. Right. And it's not like psychotherapy, for instance, where it gets very, you know, you, you kind of see, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, like, what do you what do you do there? You examine the person's thoughts, they'll do a cognitive thought record. Right. So it's like you pretty much you do experiments, like if you're, let's say, struggling with anxiety, and then you'll examine your thoughts, meaning the evidence based on the experiments. So it's like, whereas opposed to psychiatry, you're going to see the person for maybe 15 minutes, and they'll ask you kind of, how are you doing? Has this helped with the anxiety? And if no, then okay, then, you know, we'll try something else. If it has, great, then we'll kind of keep you on the medication. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so Derek, what has your experience has been like with psychiatry? Uh, I've never been to a psychiatrist. I was uh, prescribed it by my general practitioner because of the anxiety disorder and the panic attacks. Uh, First off, I'm fortunate because I went from being a 20-year vegetarian to eating meat again, and that is actually what stopped my panic attacks, and I haven't had one in almost five years. 
Now that is anecdote. And, you know, I don't think that applies to everyone because I know plenty of meat eaters who have panic disorder, but um, that's just what happened to me. It was one of the unintended consequences. It's not why I switched. Uh, But with, um, I think it's important to point out, and I've used this in the book and it's, it's Robert Whitaker, the journalist who wrote Anatomy, Anatomy of an Epidemic told me this story, but talking about the Xanax trials, the original trials for when they became approved in I think 1980 were a 14-week trial. And for the FDA to approve any drug, it just needs to show efficacy over placebo for two trials. That's, that's the barrier. That's the bar to entry. And at the four-week mark, Xanax was outperforming placebo. At eight weeks, they were even. At 14 weeks, the placebo was outperforming Xanax. So the company threw out the eight and 14 week data and only submitted the four week data and they got approved for that, which is just horrendous. It's a terrible system. Our, our whole process of you can sell these supplements without even saying what's in them. And as long as you don't make a medical claim, you can sell them and it's fine. But then this process of drug approval, which is also corrupt in, in these ways where companies can just throw out data they don't like and, and get it passed. And the same thing happened with ketamine, which I talk about at the very end of the book, which troubles me. And that's why I said that it worries me how we're moving forward with psychedelics. Um, so you have a situation where Xanax is shown to work for four weeks. That's all that's ever been proven. And Other trials have shown that it works better with psychotherapy, which makes sense because really what we're talking about is people need to talk to other people they can trust. Set and setting doesn't only apply to psychedelics. Like that's pretty much everything in life. So if you're in my situation and I was pretty aware of not getting caught on on any drugs for too long. But if you're in my situation, you go to your general practitioner and they're like, here, try out this. And then just, you know, if there are any problems, call me or if it works, then don't worry, I'll I'll give you a refill whenever you want. That was basically the attitude of my doctor. And then you, you get hooked on the feeling of calm that it does bring you. That's where the dependence starts. And that's happening to millions of people right now who just get, I mean, some people use it successfully, but some people don't. We have 6 million kids in America right now who are on ADHD medication. I think about growing up, I was hyperactive. I was never put on medication. I was just either punished or told not to do things, but it worked out okay. How do you put 6 million kids on these drugs when their prefrontal cortex, their their entire brain, but their prefrontal cortex specifically is still in development and the ways that that messes with them? I don't understand, but we've just medicated ourselves to this point. So I agree with you guys, like psychotherapy is the still strongest model. And even with psychedelics, psychotherapy is part of that model for a reason, because whatever drug you're taking is going to affect you. And then if you're just taking it, but you don't have a framework and someone to talk to about it, then you're left to your own devices, which isn't very therapeutic. So first and foremost, being able to talk to someone about your issues is the most important therapeutic aspect that we have. It's our most important tool. And we're not utilizing it enough because psychiatrists and doctors are incentivized not to implement psychotherapy. They don't make as much money. The pharmaceutical companies don't make money and it doesn't work for them. And that's the model that we have and it's broken. Yeah. And I mean, I have an anecdote for you guys. So um, in terms of the ADHD medication, so there was a teenager that I saw for about two years, I remember. And um, so he was like, kind of like this, like little tough guy, right? Because I mean, that's sort of the environment that he grew up in. And then so I remember, um, I was reading his, um, his report from a psychiatrist, and it said pretty much like, you know, uh, it said like ADD, oppositional defiance, whatever. Um, And so the way when I kind of like did the intake with him, and then intake is just kind of like a psychosocial where you pretty much get a you do an interview with the client. And so I noticed that he had a lot of anxiety. And then so I remember asking his mom, I said, like, okay, do you think that it's actually the ADD that's making it difficult for him to sit through class? Or do you think that it's anxiety? And she's like, well, I mean, I don't know, the doctor diagnosed him with, you know, ADD. So and my thinking was, okay, let me kind of question him some more. And he's like, I don't know, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't feel any anxiety. And I'm like, "Mm." but then again, like you show a pattern of avoidance, right? You're clearly running away, at least from my perspective. And he's like, nah, whatever. And then so like, as we kind of go 
on little by little, right? He kind of reveals that, yeah, I am. I really do have school phobia. Um, it scares me to sit, through, sit, to sit through the classes and whatnot. But even still, he's like, no, 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 I think I have ADD. So what makes it hard for me is that I can't actually say whether it's just anxiety or whether it's a combination or whether it's AD or what's going on with him. So the problem I think with over-medication is that a lot of times it's actually really difficult to tease apart whether it's school or social anxiety, whether it's ADHD or ADHD, whether it's some combination of the two or whatever. So my understanding is a lot of times why like kids are over-medicated is because the symptoms for ADHD, they actually are comorbid with other like illnesses, right? Major depression, anxiety, social anxiety, general anxiety. So I think a lot of times when you're going to, let's say, I don't know, um, like the school nurse or whatever, and the school nurse is like, oh, why you can't sit still? And the kids is like not going to open up and they're not going to say, well, you know, I'm really scared of the material. Like I'm afraid of failing math. They're just going to say, I don't know. It's just boring. And then the nurse is going to be like, okay, here's regular. So, wow. yeah. So I think that that's, that's kind of like, what's the culprit or at least partially what the culprit is of the overprescription of ADD medication. And you, you, you mentioned a point in there that one of the books that I cite in my book is by Joseph Davis and the book is called chemically imbalanced, but he brings up something that is often overlooked as well, which is a lot of times patients come in already deciding on their diagnosis and they just tell the doctor and they say, I think I should be on this. And the doctor's like, okay, I guess so. Let's get you on it. And that actually happens a high percentage of the times he had, he had interviewed uh, something like 80 or 90 people for this book. But then looking at data that happens over and over again. So when you say that this kid was just like, he's diagnosing himself, I have ADD, that, that is not uncommon at any age because it almost, I, I compared at one point in the book, um, not, not the exact comparison, but um, how detergent companies used to pay soccer moms to talk about the detergent they're using, right, to their group of friends to try to influence them. Well, the same thing happens with the, with the diagnoses that we get and the drugs that we get. So if we're on something, it's like, oh, is that working for you? Maybe I should try it for my kid. And that is that actually does happen. We're social creatures. And, you know, the reason that uh, first with tranquilizers and then antidepressants, they, they took off was because there is no di disease specificity with psychiatric problems, right? It's not like cancer where you can point to the tumor. It, you, you, are just, you are just guessing at the, uh, the diagnosis. And you know, for a while they latched onto serotonin, but it's been shown since the early seventies that the chemically imbalanced theory of depression is false we're still operating on that 50 years later. And that's how we're prescribing though, even though there's no evidence that the actual chemical imbalances are created by anxiety or depression. It seems, and this is something else Robert Whitaker talked to me about when I interviewed him, it seems that it's the SSRIs that are actually creating chemical imbalances. So when you're working with this model, of course it's confusing, but you, you can't have the patients diagnosing themselves. That's not gonna be a very fruitful method for therapy. Yeah. And yeah, and I mean, that's so sad that you kind of just, and I've actually seen that happen in psychiatry before too, where a client would come in and the psychiatrist will say, okay, like, what do you need? And it's like, what? People have actually told me that before. And so, I mean, look, I understand obviously diagnosing is difficult because I mean, you're pretty much just going on anecdotal evidence. But the point is that I also think based on also what you're saying, Derek, is that there's like this, this incentive to just have people kind of like in and out the door and just, you know, you give them whatever they need. And it's essentially, I mean, look, I know this is reductive, but I do think there's some truth to this they're kind of like drug dealers in a way i mean it's like yeah, yeah. You, you sort of you know they're incentivized to prescribe those drugs right and the thing is it's like because it's legal i mean the idea is you don't necessarily have you know kind of much uh there's usually not much backlash against it so and i mean so i guess going back to psychedelics then so derek can you tell us about how that would contrast with psychedelic therapy and in particular um let's say the therapy of the more sort of ancient peoples and the ritual involved in it uh, let me make one point on that too, that I think it's important of the last point is that there has never been a tapering protocol that has been accepted by psychiatrists or doctors. So if you want to come off these drugs, it's basically good luck. Like some, some people have created their own tapering protocols and some unfortunately try to sell it as a program, which is also <laughs> kind of dangerous because, but we don't know how to successfully come off these drugs. And Recent research I, I covered uh, for Big Think a few months ago, a meta-analysis that looked at, um, at coming off of benzos and antidepressants two years, up to two years later, people were still experiencing side effects. So that's something that needs to be addressed as well. Uh, but really with, with psychedelics, I mean, first off, there's, there's just no evidence that 
uh, you know, okay, with MDMA specifically, there could be some neurotoxicity and that's definitely dose dependent. So one dose isn't most likely going to do anything, but if repeated use could do something with the serotonin. So that's true. But with LSD and, and uh, psilocybin, there has never been shown any neurotoxicity with these drugs. And part of the reason, again, is you don't do them all the time. Even myself as a fan, I maybe do them twice a year. I mean, this year it's only been once because it's not something I feel like I need to do. I do it once in a while. I did it a few weeks ago because I think quarantine got pretty heavy after a while. And I just wanted a reboot to kind of think about life and the bigger picture. And that's how people generally use them if you're using them intelligently. Uh, and so if you're doing this substance once in a while that doesn't have neurotoxic effects, then there's not going to be much of a danger if you're doing them in the right environment. But over and over, we're seeing that the long-term effects of this whole range of, of drugs we call antidepressants, what happens uh, with people and their ability to function and their immune functioning and just their outlook on life, it's very damaging. And so that's, that I think is the, the biggest, the biggest hurdle we have to come over is just understanding that psychedelics are not this demonized evil thing that are one time and you're going to go insane, which has been promoted for a very long time and still is. How awesome is it by the way? And I'm sure you, you love this, uh, that people like yourself, uh, people like uh, Joe Rogan. And I, I think you, you did have something to do with that uh, DMT, the spirit molecule uh, documentary, right? I was the music that's, supervisor. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Which is like awesome. Yeah. You know, uh, that, that was something that also made a big impact on me when I first saw it. Mm -hmm. And uh, things like that, people like uh, yeah, Jason Silva or other pioneers in the past, like Timothy Leary or, or Terrence McKenna. I love that um, Sam Harris now too, right? Uh, a lot of these people are pushing um these these uh how effective psychedelics are and it's actually becoming very mainstream like i, I was i was surprised like i used to you know you used to just hear these kinds of things in small groups right it, it wasn't something that uh it was going out to millions of people and nowadays it is right and i think even uh, maps is making progress with their mdma trials i think they're in phase three right now yep and uh they hope to have FDA approval by 2022, I think. Yep. Yes. Yeah. How awesome is that? Like, and that's not even that far away. And I wonder what kind of consequences these have in the long term, especially like once it's approved. I mean, of course, there obviously there can be negative consequences, right? Definitely you have to prepare yourself for that. And, uh, you know, any, any tool can be double-edged, right? But I'm well, very excited. Yeah, sorry. No, no, no. I, I completely agree. I'm excited too. But I, I do want to point out one of the last things I write about in the book and what I, what I referenced earlier about the ketamine trials. I was excited. I mean, first of all, ketamine is not a psychedelic. It's a disassociative and a hallucinogen. It gets lumped together with psychedelics because people who try psychedelics all, and that was my experience. I did it back in my 20s uh, when I was doing all the psychedelics. So I get that it, it fits in the category, but defining it as a psychedelic is false. It's not actually that. So that's, that's important to note. And what scares me is, you know, at first I was very happy because anecdotally it was showing efficacy. The ketamine clinics that are popping up are, do include the psychotherapy model. They're not cheap, but you have to do guidance sessions before and then after as part of it, which I think is the right way to go. So that made me happy. But the company that got ketamine approved by the FDA, uh, they were not able to show efficacy over two trials. And so they submitted a trial, it's called the discontinuation trial. And that, this was done by a, by a group in uh, Poland. And six people from that group died. Wow. And three of them by suicide. And two of them, two of the three that died by suicide were not so they didn't have suicidal ideation before entering the trial. Wow. So what the pharmaceutical company that was submitting the data said was when they got off the ketamine after I think it was four weeks, I could be wrong on that. So I want to be clear, but when they got off of it, that instead of claiming that it was a side effect of ketamine, they said, no, no, that was the original condition that they came in with. 
and the ketamine was working. And when they got off of it, that's when they went back. So they were trying to say that that was the ketamine was helping them, but there's no proof of that. In fact, it is possible that the side effect of coming off of the ketamine is what created what happened to them. But for some reason, the FDA approved it. And that, that scares me. I really, I hope it's a model that we can use moving forward. But if we're going to make the same mistakes that we've made with benzodiazepines and SSRIs and SNRIs and antipsychotics, which psychosis is not a common condition, and yet a lot of people are on antipsychotics as an adjuvant of their depression therapy, that's really problematic. So adding another layer of this disassociative drugs to try to find help for people, especially when it's approved for use for treatment-resistant depression. And that is defined as you've tried two different drugs and they didn't work. That's all it is. So they might've tried a benzo and then an SNRI and neither of those worked. And they're like, okay, let's try a ketamine now. And you're right. So you're, you're just, you're applying the old model to this new substance. And I fear that we're going to run into some of the same problems. And what's going to happen is say MDMA, which does show with repeated uses, potentially some sign of neurotoxicity. And, you know, Roland Griffith talks about this. So we want to be very careful. And I think MAPS is very careful about it. But what's going to happen is if these drugs are rushed and then some people have adverse effects, then basically it opens up the government to come in and say, you know what, we knew this was a bad idea. Let's, let's just cancel all of this and then put them back in schedule one. And that is a risk we are taking right now. And so how come antipsychotics are also used for depression? Because of the cocktails. I mean, one person, there was a great documentary called Medicating Normal, um, which is about benzodiazepines specifically. But uh, Angela Peacock was one of the main figures in the documentary. And I interviewed her for my podcast and for uh, Big Think. And she was a, a Iraq war veteran who came home and had severe PTSD. At the height of her protocol, she was on 17 drugs at once. She had to taper 17 drugs by herself. It took her years. And the hardest one to come off was a benzodiazepine. But, but basically antipsychotics are just, you know, I mean, you know this, you're getting on one drug and then you're like, oh, but now I can't sleep. Okay, let's give you this for sleep. Okay, now I'm having trouble go to the bathroom. Let's give you this. And so antipsychotics have just been used for different uh, just been used in different cocktails. They've been put in there to be like, well, this could help with this, but these are medications that are really meant for schizophrenia or really disassociating uh, mental disorders that have made their way into general anxiety and depression treatments when they have no reason to be there. And the interesting thing that you obviously touch on in your book is that when it comes to psychedelic psycho, uh, psychotherapy, so as opposed to, let's say, psychiatry or as opposed to seeing a doctor once a month and then kind of like re-upping every, every sort of 30 days or whatever it is, that with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So I want to read a quote before I ask my next question. So uh, you wrote, a psychedelic can give you a vision of possibility, but then it doesn't show you anything about maintaining that possibility. When the vision goes, the drug wear off, wears off, you and you are back where you were. You haven't learned anything. Um, I'm sorry. When the vision goes, the drug wears off. You are, you are back where you were. You haven't learned anything, but you've seen that something is possible. It is then up to you to figure out how to manifest that possibility. So Derek, can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit about the work that goes into kind of, um, let's say post-treatment or post-psychedelic experience? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm a journalist. So uh, in terms of what actually goes in, I've had, I've, I've never been with a psychiatrist, so I've never done talk therapy. The closest I ever worked with was a homeopathic doctor. And I, I do not treat homeopathy kindly. I think, uh, I kind of think it's placebo, yeah. but the reason I bring it up is because the most powerful aspect of working with the homeopathic doctor was that he sat with me for three hours and talked to me. It was a talk therapy session that led into what he thought was a diagnosis. Now, anything that he gave me in terms of drugs never worked, but the, the actual talking with someone for three hours about my problems was very helpful. Like I, that's what I still remember from that session. And again, we live in 
a culture and I'm a very big fan of technology. I grew up the son of a computer programmer. I've been around computers my whole life. My entire career besides movement is made on my laptop. And so I, I understand the value of them, but my wife up until quarantine works in uh, hospitality. She was an events director at different hotels. And she told me something about a year or two ago, which I found fascinating. One of the biggest things that hiring directors at hotels and, and people in the hospitality industry look for when they're hiring now is the ability to look at someone in the eye when they talk to them. Because people have a real trouble with looking at someone in the eye because they're so used to communicating on their phone. Mm-hmm. So when they actually make physical contact with people, it, it disrupts their normal patterns. That, that to me was so eye-opening. And that human connection of being able to sit with someone and talk and look at them and trust them that they're there for your benefit is, is so valuable. And it's what this model of pharmacology just has completely destroyed. Uh, whatever you're feeling about Freud and that whole era of psychiatry, the psychotherapy talk model is still the best model that we have. So if you have this intense psychedelic experience where you're listening to peaceful music, but you see all the evil in the world in the sky, and then you don't have anyone to talk to about what that could mean, then you're just left again to your own device to figure it out. But to have someone who understands what these are and what they could do to you to talk through it with is the, I think, the model that we need to think about moving forward. In fact, more than anything, I think psychotherapy is what we need, even more than a psychedelic, more than any antidepressant. It's just being able to talk to people that you can trust are there for your best interest. I don't think of anything more healing than that. Right. Yeah. And my thinking is like for a lot of us going back to the ego and whatnot, there's sort of a stubbornness. So I think that when a lot of us would go to, let's say, to see a therapist or maybe even a psychiatrist, when the person tells you like, hey, man, like these things that you're doing, they're really counterproductive. And here's all the evidence against or here's the, all the evidence for it and the evidence against your behavior. And so it's very easy for us to kind of double down on what we're doing and say, mm, no, sorry, buddy, you're wrong, you know, for X, Y or Z reason. Yeah. And my thinking is a lot of times with the psychedelics, what happens is you actually get to see a full front sort of in your face image of how your behavior affects people. And uh, my understanding is like, like, let's say if you're seeing a therapist, then that therapist could say, well, I mean, now you've seen it, right? You've seen kind of this real or this backdrop of your life. What are you going to do with that information? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting also in a, in a sort of talk therapy session, if, if somebody really builds like a real rapport with you, and you actually feel like you can be vulnerable with them. And uh, then you actually start to listen to their suggestions, right? right? Maybe there is something that you have a blind spot to, a scotoma to, right? Um, Good but then, word. What? Good word. Uh, sure, yeah, <laughs> sure. And, yeah. and so, uh, yeah, and say, uh, you know, you trust them enough that you'll actually take their feedback and maybe you'll start to implement these other ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one cool thing anyway about psychedelics too is uh there's this one time i had this uh, just for fun just to give sure. you an anecdote why not i had uh this experience where it felt like um again it was back to i was projecting onto the environment so it was kind of as if reality was a mirror right mm-hmm. so uh i had this weird little realization where i was thinking well um whatever i was seeing i couldn't change it like if i wanted to manipulate it i couldn't like for example if i was uh sad and then i see like something sad over there i can't go over there and change it but Mm -hmm. the moment that i decided to be happy or to smile the reflection had no choice but to smile back and like it was weird like the way i kind of pieced that into my head as i was saying that sort of you know content to myself it was weird it created like this feeling sense of realization and what's the takeaway the the takeaway is uh don't try to manipulate the environment sort of uh change who you are inside and then the reality will kind of reflect that to you. I love that. It's, it's not, a, yeah, it's not like a generalization that works in all cases, but um, you, sometimes you, you come to certain thoughts mm-hmm. or certain feelings that make sense to you in those experiences. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you can logicize that it's it's good to think positive, right? Or uh, I can see the benefit of why I should be uh, in the moment, right? But then until you actually experience being present to the moment or in a flow state or something like that, 
then you start to have that sort of feeling realization as opposed to that like intellectualization of how you're supposed to be. Right. And then is the discrepancy like, okay, rather than controlling the environment, I'm going to really work on controlling myself and then directly, maybe I'll be able to control the environment. Well, what's, what's interesting is right. Like, uh, your perception colors, your experience with the environment, like what you, I mean, not to put it so simply, but technically what you put out in a sense is kind of what you get back sometimes, right. In a sense. Right. Right. So, uh, that that influences what you what you experience with it. So if uh, if I decide to either not project at all or maybe to project something good, that'll color the interaction I'll have with the environment, with the person, uh, with whatever. Mm -hmm. And Derek, would was it like that for you too with your experiences? And especially like when it comes to the lack of control. Um, I guess well, particularly when it comes to the lack of control, was that kind of scary for you? Because like even the way Alan describes it, yeah, sounds scary. <laughs> Yeah, well, one thing I'll say about the cognitive reframing is so valuable and important. If you read, I've worked for startups for a number of years. And one thing, I, so I've read a lot of books about entrepreneurship and successful leaders, business leaders. And one thing you, you quickly realize when you read enough books is that they just don't see failure, period. Like there's no such thing as failure. Everything is just a learning of another brick that they learn from and then build upon. So when it's, failure is something that, a lot of people, especially in social media age, they think about it all the time. They see these people living these lives and they're like, what I'm failing. And that, that really drives depression in a broad way, especially among younger kids right now. But failure, I, I also, I've, I let go of that idea a long time ago because then I'm not focusing on what I'm going to be building next or what I'm actually doing. Uh, but specific to control, yeah, you got to learn. You got to learn you're not in control. Like you can control certain things. And that's, that's actually something because when I was doing all of these substances, I was studying religion. Uh, I'm an atheist. I don't have one. I just like storytelling. And I find the actual process of religion and cult indoctrination and storytelling and mythology all fascinating. But there's one thing that kind of cuts through a lot of the spiritual practices of the world is that control what you control, but then don't mistake that for what you can't control. Because if you get caught up thinking about all of the things you can't control, you're not going to fare well because you can't actually make an impact. So one thing that we talk about on conspirituality is people ask, how do you change a nation? I mean, you kind of brought it up before with psychedelics and healing the political divide. We can't like the three of us can't go out and change the nation. But what we can do is we can talk to the people close to us and we can create content that we think is valuable to people to engage in conversations with. And we can do that. And that's something manageable that we can control and hopefully help people by doing that. But if you think about like the world, you're, it's never, you're going to get, you're never going to make any progress because you're never going to feel like you're doing enough. And I think that, that is something you do learn in psychedelics. Uh, when you're in the middle of a bl blowout experience, you realize how little control and you realize that you're a part of something much, much bigger instead of so focused on your specific role. And that actually alleviates anxiety. I don't see it as adding to it. I see it as, as taking some of it down because then you don't have to feel like everything's on your shoulders. And then you can really just make progress doing what you need to do personally. What I really love is that in your book, you talk about perfectionism and perfection being sort of relative. And I think that that also applies to the notion of doing enough or being enough. So a lot of us, I think, you know, my clients, you and I probably, that we struggle with this idea of like, what does it mean to do enough? What does it mean to be enough? What does it mean to be perfect? And a lot of times, right, something Derek, you talked about with our biases, even though we sort of tell ourselves that, yes, no, there's no such thing as enough, like objectively in the world out there. Enough is pretty relative, right? Enough to me yeah. in this context means this enough to that person in that context means that but interestingly enough even though like we think that way rationally and i could tell you know alan i could say yeah of course i feel like i'm enough i'm doing these things you know my particular little cocoon i think a lot of times i live my life in a way where there is such a thing as an objective enough so in a way it's like the explicit belief as well you know perfection is you know whatever i might say it is or whatever my community says it is but really i actually believe no there actually is a perfection somewhere out there and i can achieve it and so what i really loved about your book is that you pretty much contextualize it 
And you said that like going back to responsibility and sort of having or feeling like you have the world on your shoulders. The idea is really like when we talk about enough or we're talking about being enough, doing enough, being perfect, it literally the only thing that we could do is we could sort of contribute as best as we can to our little communities. At the end of the day, right, it's something like the philosopher Boethius once said that we're pretty much just sort of like specks somewhere in the world, right? Or we're these little sort of pockets in the corner of the universe. And that's kind of all we're going to be. And I think a lot of times like we need to remind ourselves that enough, perfect, uh, doing enough, whatever that is, right? These are all relative concepts. And these are concepts that really exist in particular forms and or rather in different environments in particular forms. And they differ from context to context. I talk about this briefly, but it's something I've written about for a number of years, which is the difference between individualist and collectivist cultures. And we have a blaring example right in front of us right now. What cultures have managed coronavirus best? They're predominantly Asian cultures. Countries that in the normal course of life, if you have a cold, you wear a mask when you go out in public because there's a recognition, well, I'm not feeling well, but I have to go do this right now. So let me not infect others. That is, that is part of the life philosophy. And this isn't to say that they're in any way a utopia because everywhere has issues, but that mindset alone just changes so much. And we live in the, in the culture, the country that promotes individualism like nowhere else and then exports it. And that is really damaging. And that's something having worked in the wellness industry for 20 years now that I see constantly this deification of the self that is just, I, I don't really think we understand the damage that it does to the understanding the importance of the collective identity of your tribe or who you're a part of. And that's, that I think is at root of some of the political strife that we're experiencing right now. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like that's why it's important to uh, popularize, sorry, popularize certain ideas like, uh, for example, the idea of ego and what, it, you know, to, to identify uh, with something and make it the same as you and then anything outside of that you resisted and all that. I, I didn't learn about that till uh, like uh, my 20s, like early 20s. And when that concept was introduced to me, I was like, whoa, you know, I, I'd never heard of anything like this before. Like, I wish I wish I was taught this when I was younger. Um, and I think I think it's important to get uh, like that kind of knowledge out to as many people as possible, because some things uh, to us that we're talking about right now, it's things that we're used to or things that we become accustomed to. Mm -hmm. To some people, it's the first time they've ever heard some of these ideas. Yeah. Right. And um that's that's my wish for for the world right and, and that's why also i like uh, psychedelics because um again when i uh when i first uh, tried uh, psilocybin that's what kind of taught me to kind of look out outside of myself right. and and see the ego and see you know where you know where i did wrong and uh what i can improve on and and things like that it wasn't right. just with psychedelics but these kinds of concepts are very important to get out there. Yeah. And then also speaking about like the difference between sort of ideals from the individualistic and collectivist perspective. I also have like um, a friend of mine, I remember. So when he was going to, he was thinking of proposing to his girlfriend. And so he says, well, you know what? I haven't achieved enough yet. So like, I don't want to really propose to her yet because I don't feel like I'm good enough for her. I don't deserve her yet. Right. So he was coming from this individualistic framework. Whereas if you were to ask her, she'd be like, like, dude, I've been waiting 10 years for this. I don't know what he's waiting for. Like he's such a good guy. Guy, right he's like the ultimate family man he's so good to his siblings he's so good to me he's good to my family like he's exactly what i would want in terms of a husband but from his perspective right again the sort of relativistic uh, notions of perfection right from his yeah. perspective he's like well you know my career kind of sucks i still haven't graduated from college i don't really know what i'm doing for a living i might want to go to law school um if i'm still in law school right i'm still not good enough for her because i'm not a lawyer yet and all of these different notions kind of get intertwined right i think and i rather they don't get intertwined unfortunately because like from his perspective he's like oh i'm not worthy of her and then from her perspective it's like dude you were worthy of me like the moment we started dating like you're great like i love you but it's so interesting how we kind of get wrapped again the ego how we get wrapped up in these notions of who we ought to be yeah yeah uh that that's i i i have friends unfortunately i have a very good friend who lost his longtime girlfriend for that exact reason <laughs> because he just constantly wouldn't propose because he was never where he wanted to be and then lost the love of his life. It's, it's really tragic. 
Yeah. But did she kind of let him know, hey, dude, you know, you've oh, been there, years. right? Oh, for yeah. years. Yeah, yeah, for years. He, yeah. <laughs> so, all right, before we wrap up, Derek, I wanted to ask, um, so if there is like sort of one major takeaway from this book, right, in terms of, let's say, kind of the medical establishment, psychiatry, psychology, um, psychedelic use, sort of growth, whatever, right, all of these things combined, what do you think that is? I, I think if you want to take one away, it's just to think critically. It's something that I... I've constantly talked about as a yoga structure instructor in the wellness industry and watching how people will latch onto trends and just, I mean, diet is a great example because I've written about diet studies and fasting and all sorts of studies for a number of years. And we just get so caught up in trends all the time where something will happen and we'll just be like, this is this, this particular mushroom. And I'm not talking about psychedelic, but it'll, it'll cure this or it's, it's pervasive and constant. And all it is, is marketing. And I think that there's going to be some level of that with psychedelics moving forward. It just is what it is. You, you had Alan mentioned a number of figures. You didn't mention Tim Ferriss, who is doing amazing work right, right now with getting, like, I really appreciate him more than any of them for the work he's doing. Cause I think he's doing it well, but there is that level of marketing that's going to come around it. And I just, I don't want as we move into this phase where psychedelics will likely be legalized and put into protocol, I don't want people to get their expectations up too high, especially because if you're coming off of something where you take regularly and it helps you maintain your life, but it's also doing damage, don't go into this new therapeutic model thinking it's just going to cure you. Because again, the work is always done in sobriety, no matter what we're talking about. So it's the critical thinking about that, that is really lacking the magical thinking that persists in our culture is very dangerous. And I hope that we can criticize the things that we love. I love psychedelics. I love the experience, but I do in terms of the research in the book point out where there might be problems because I want it to be, I want them to be used well and actually help people in their life. And so putting the cart before the horse is something that we've seen happen with cannabis and we're going to do it again if we're not careful. And that could be really damaging. So I, I hope people think through the process before we implement anything too widely. Absolutely. All right, Alan, final questions before we go. Oh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you and your work, uh, where could we find you on social media? Uh, I, I always just say go to DerekBarris.com because everything branches out from there. So whatever medium you use, uh, you'll find links right in the navigation bar to all the social channels from there. So that's the easiest way. And then the book is on the homepage. So if people are interested, they can find the links to it there. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Derek. So this much. was such a meaningful Yeah, no, I had so much fun. And thank you for sharing your anecdotes too. I always love hearing people's own stories about them because uh, you know, in the book, that's what I, I use a lot of anecdotes to, to kind of buffer all of the research, because if it's just going to be a journalism book, it can get a little dry. So I tried to use some experiences too. So I appreciated hearing your stories as well. Absolutely. All right, man, we'll be in touch soon. Okay. Yeah. Let me know when it's up guys. All right. Take care. Right, man. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. What a roller coaster. <laughs> awesome. awesome. All right, guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast. Uh, we're at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. Hit the bell. Mm -hmm. And then you can also find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com under the STM Podcast section. All right, guys, thanks again for watching. Look forward to next week's episode. I think we're having Ryan, Ryan Stelzer. Mm -hmm. See you.